Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Looking good, looking good. Like you know we should looking good today. You're listening to the Iron Mike Keenan Podcast. We're the bomb going strong. We can do no wrong. We're looking good today. Welcome to the Iron Mike Keenan Podcast, episode number nine. Scott Morrison along with the coach, Iron Mike Keenan. You are in Florida. I am in Toronto. We are in cyberspace and self-isolation. How are you doing, Mike? We're doing well, Scotty. I'm fortunately in a better environment in terms of weather compared to Toronto, but uh, uh, like you, we are uh, uh, hunkered down in the house and uh, great for technology f- uh, to allow us to continue our podcast. Yeah. Well, we're in a situation like no other, obviously, and uh, with the virus and uh, first and foremost from both of us and uh, and all around us, uh, thanks to the healthcare workers, the doctors, the nurses, the first responders, the police, the fire department, all the essential services workers, everybody who's uh, continuing on, paramedics to help keep life as normal as possible for the rest of us. We wish everybody safety and great health. And I know there's someone in particular, Mike, you want to speak to. Yeah, there, there is. I'll give a shout out to uh, Mike Polino, a great friend of mine, a coach with me, uh, played for me and his wife, Kim. Uh, Mike came back from Russia via New York City and uh, ended up on the farm just outside of Peterborough and has been diagnosed with the virus, he and his wife. So we're wishing them all the best and uh, hopefully uh, a speedy recovery. Yeah, all the best to Mike and Kim and uh, to everybody, stay home and keep a distance and let's uh, get through this in in the best possible way. Um, As I mentioned, Mike, it's this sort of stoppage in in the sports world is is different from anything else we've ever experienced. But just to harken back and uh, share a few stories, there there are worse shutdowns in the National Hockey League over the years. Uh, back in 19, April of 1992, there was a, an 11-day strike. You were coaching in Chicago at the time. And, and sports and hockey, and, and being a player, a coach, a manager, is all about routine. Talk to us about, say, that time in 92 where you had that, that short shutdown because that was a special spring for you guys. It really was. And it was a very short shutdown. I was the manager and coach for the Blackhawks. And, and uh, 11 day or so uh, break in the schedule uh, didn't really affect us that much. We continued to train, unlike today where they can't be together as a group. Uh, we continued to, to train and uh, the, the, uh, the problem was solved very quickly and we went on that particular spring to play for the Stanley Cup against Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh, but there had been other times where I've been on the sidelines uh, uh, either through s- suspension and or shutdowns by the league and and that comes to to mind when I when I departed from New York. Okay well let's talk about that 94-95 the league shut down you won the cup 
the spring of 94, obviously, with the Rangers ended the drought. Yes. Uh, and then following that, uh, my departure from New York. Uh, there's darkness in the fall of 94, 95, and you'd moved on to St. Louis. That's right. And and Gary Bettman suspended me for 90 days uh, with my uh, departure from New York. Uh, that didn't particularly impact the others on the team because uh, I was at the cottage in Northern Ontario up in Fort McNichol. And... <laughs> sat there with Gary Bettman almost calling me every day to make sure I was behaving myself and I was a good boy. And finally one day I said, Gary, stop calling me. You're interrupting my dinner. So <laughs> he, he did. And then I got back to work. I was only back to work a few days and then the shutdown came. And I can recall Jack Quinn and I every day going to lunch and, and discussing. And uh, Jack was in touch with the Players Association. God bless Jack. So he's deceased now. Uh, trying to get updates on what the progress was because at, at that time a franchise like St. Louis was very vulnerable in terms of finances and uh, you know the longer we there were some teams that could withstand the, the lockouts for a longer period of time and there were a group of teams that couldn't so there was some uh, debate between the, the strong teams and the weaker teams in terms of where to settle out with the players because of the financial uh, hardships on, on the, some of the weaker teams. But that was a, a definite uh, shutdown. And that uh, came in the fall. We didn't really start playing. I think we played 48 games, if I recall correctly, and it began in January. Yeah, it was 104-day shutdown and 48-game schedule. So, you know, right now, I guess in that situation, uh, there is a deadline in that, I think at the time, and we saw it in a later lockout that the team, uh, the NHL sort of establishes a date where you can't move on. But what it, what's it like, the uncertainty of not knowing if a schedule is going to resume? I mean, 04, 05, we saw an entire year blown away. And similar situation to perhaps what we're in now of the great unknown for, for everyone is how difficult is it to start up once you get that notice? Well, we, we were preparing ourselves for a start, but this is a lot more difficult situation than what we uh, endured. Uh, um, you know, players could still train. They, they actually were getting together and going to the practice facilities on their own without coaches. That was not admissible. But in this particular case, uh, it's a different thing. They can train on their own, I guess, maybe in distant groups. But we, we continue to train. And then when, uh, when, the, when, the, uh, when the dispute was uh, settled out, we were given, I think it was a week or 10 days to get back on schedule and, and back into the routine and start preparing for a season. So, uh, a little bit different circumstances now because uh, there's there's separation amongst everyone, and that wasn't particularly the case in the shutdowns that we experienced. So the, there's going to be a little bit of, uh, in my of, on my behalf, interest to see how much time, if indeed they do want to start up again, whenever that might be, how much time are they going to give these teams uh, in terms of prep to prepare for a ongoing season 
which is, I believe they're hoping it goes into the summer uh, because of the disconnect of all the players and the staff. Well, and to your point, Mike, that's the one thing is that the players, like the arenas are closed. Like it's not like they can go and find ice and do, they can work out in a home gym and things like that, but there's no ice and there's no gatherings. And uh, it's just a wildly different scenario. And the threat obviously of the virus itself just changes the whole dynamic. Well, it really does. And, and there's been a couple of players diagnosed in the league already, and it'll be somewhat of a medical uh, decision as well as uh, organizational decision of how to come back together and uh, what testing might uh, occur in terms of coming back together or medical testing. So uh, there's a lot of uncertainty for all of us in this uh environment that we're living in today and and certainly to to bring sports back would be exciting and i think uplifting uh for the world it's a reprieve from the hardships that we suffer i, I remember my good friend ej mcguire was a great friend of mine and coach and he used to always tell me that you know sport is the opiate of the people uh people thrive on on cheering for their teams and and getting away from the mundane routine sometimes of their lives or their daily work. But in this case, uh, I think it would be invigorating if and when we can bring that back to life and, and give the people something to smile about or cheer about. Yeah, absolutely. It's an escape for us all, that's for sure. A chance to kind of real life goes into the, back, the background and we can uh, escape to the fantasies and all of that. But uh, so hopefully sooner, and later, I should mention that this is obviously the first time we've done the podcast from afar, but we're going to keep going on a weekly basis, uh, dropping down the uh, episodes every Wednesday afternoon at three o'clock on uh, the various platforms. And, um, and this week, we are going to take uh, questions from the audience uh, to engage uh, our supporters and followers. So uh, why don't we jump into that and I'll throw some questions your way and uh, we'll have a little fun with, uh, with the interaction. So first question, um, who are the two of the most influential mentors in your career and what were some of the most important lessons they taught you about life and coaching? Actually, I had a few great mentors. Uh... I had a great coach, a fellow named Doug Williams, who played for the Whippy Dunlops, was a principal in Oshawa, who just passed. And uh, he really empowered me as a youngster. We went to the All-Ontario Finals in Whippy, and he empowered me with a leadership role that I found very important. And uh, that was a, an incredible, uh, really, introduction to that part of the game as a youngster. Tom Watt, who I played for at the University of Toronto and then went on to be great friends with, and Tom and I conversed about hockey for years. Uh, he really, really was uh, a mentor for me in terms of the technical part of the game and learning the game and studying the game. He had great international experience. He had great teams and he also was a coach that I had finally come to play for who instilled such a winning discipline 
in the locker room. I envisioned myself when I walked into the Varsity Blues dressing room in the University of Toronto, and I was afraid to have a bad practice. I had already graduated from St. Lawrence University and played in the ECAC and NCAA hockey and played well. And I'd been to a training camp, Atlanta Flames' first training camp in, in Drummondville, Quebec, and uh, Cliff Fletcher invited me to the camp. Uh, but I came back uh, for grad school and I remember walking, I said, this must be what it's like to walk into the Montreal Canadiens room because Tom had won nine national championships and 11 Ontario championships throughout his career. So when you walked into the dress room, uh, you know, you didn't want to disappoint anyone on a daily basis, particularly with your practice habits and skills. And of course, Scotty Bowman, who hired me as my first my first professional job? Uh, I really studied him in terms of uh, uh, his bench management more than anything else. Uh, I think he saw a little bit of himself in me, and that's why he was interested in me. I was coaching Peterborough, and he and Roger Nielsen, who also a mentor, came to visit me and invited me to become. Uh, the head coach of the Rochester Americans, their farm team in uh, for the Buffalo Sabres. So there were a number of great assistant coaches that I had that were so helpful. And we learned from each other along the way. But I would suggest those people at the beginning of my career uh, helped shape uh, my thinking about the game. And I should mention that Tom Waters, a good friend of both of ours, as you just mentioned, is uh... Tom's going to be inducted in October into the Ontario Sports Hall of Fame. So uh, a great recognition of uh, the wonderful career he had. Really. And uh, I know that there's a push amongst the alumni to uh, have Tom inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame, much like uh, the alumni in, in uh, Alberta did for the University of Alberta, Claire Drake. Yeah, uh, played in the Olympic program for Claire Drake and Tom Watt. And uh, again, great uh, associates in the game and part of the game in developing hockey and in particular across Canada, but in the world and a great impact they both had with Hockey Canada and the development of coaching and hockey in, in the country. Well, there's someone else and it's a topic for another day, but in my estimation, someone else who should be in the Hockey Hall of Fame named Mike Keenan and uh, but we'll get to that one in a later episode. Um, another question. So Keith God, I, got too, I got too many enemies to get into the Hockey Hall of Fame. <laughs> <laughs> you got a lot of allies too. Uh, Keith Olbermann, who was a former uh, sports anchor, uh, sportscaster with ESPN, sent me a message. <laughs> I put out the ask for uh, questions for Iron Mike. He says, how much does... Iron Mike still hate me. Well, it's interesting. When I was in New York, uh, we did some commercials for ESPN, and I don't recall that I disliked them at all, but uh, I'm sure, as you know, as a beat writer at one time or following me, there was probably days where I uh, 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 really annoyed a lot of people in the media, and he was probably one of them. So, Or uh, if, I, if I felt that there was a question that was... Uh, not in line, I would certainly respond accordingly, and I wasn't very friendly about it. Again, one of my great distractions as a as a media guy, and then I end up being in the media, 
as you mentioned in 204, I'm, I'm working for Sportsnet, Madison Square Gardens and NBC. So it was kind of a, 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 an oxymoron that now I'm working in the media after I've been such a, a, a distraction from time to time in my relationships with them. Well, I think I hired you twice, so it's my you fault. You did. <laughs> okay, another thank, question. Thank you, by the way. <laughs> oh, you're very welcome. Very welcome. Um, Bill Elliott, who's a good friend of mine, uh, father of Brian Elliott, NHL goaltender, uh, sent along a question. Tom Graham, who brought Brian up from House League to AA uh, as a young player, is a good friend of yours. And uh, the question from Bill is, are there any differences in coaching styles between you and Tom? And tell us a little bit about Tom. Well, Tom is a great friend uh, from the Georgian Bay uh, connection. Uh, we go back to uh, University of Toronto. In fact, when I was, uh, when I was coaching there, Tom was working at University of Toronto. And then uh, we became great friends in the Graham family and the Blacks and all the, the entire uh, Graham family, uh, all related, living on Georgian Bay uh, in the vicinity of Port Midneco, Midland. And we had great gatherings. But Tom uh, also uh, was working in Vaughn at one time, building arenas and, and was coaching his son and, and coaching hockey, minor hockey. So I don't know uh, who he liked in his coaching style, too, but. Uh, he certainly had a, a lot of discussions with myself about hockey and Mark, his son at the time was playing and, and Brian, in fact, was at the cottage as well. And, and we would talk hockey. So he ends up being an NHL goaltender. And, and uh, I can't uh, really answer the, the question because I, I'm sure Tom was a lot nicer coach than I was. <laughs> <laughs> there might be two or three players that would say that. Yeah, probably Brian. a lot would agree with that. Yeah, and Brian uh, has had a great career and have a renaissance, was having a renaissance again this season with the Philadelphia Flyers, one of your former teams. Uh, another question, this is from uh, Todd Moore. Uh, looking back at the 1987 Canada Cup, one of the greatest series ever, if not the greatest, certainly for one generation what 1972 was to another generation, the Canada-Russia final uh, in that Canada. Uh, but you used Dale on the face-off on the game-winning goal in game three of that three-game final. Uh, and Todd mentions that in when you won the cup in 94 at the Rangers, you used Craig McTavish for the final face-off in the last seconds of that game. And his question is, why did you not use Mark Messier uh, in either situation when he was a guy you went to so many times to win key face-offs? Well, it's a great question. In particular, that series with the Soviet Union, Mark did play against their top unit and shut them down with uh, Anderson Gartner. And, and uh, much to everyone's surprise, including Mark, is why wasn't he out there to take that face off? I throw it three centermen, Howard Chuck, along with uh, uh, Dale Howard Chuck, Wayne Gretzky, and Mario Lemieux. And I think the, the discussion goes, or maybe it's embellished now, 
But Wayne says, I'm not taking that face off. Meryl says, I'm not taking that face off. And Dale says, I guess that leaves it up to me. But I had coached Dale, and he was in junior and in Oshawa. But he was having a great game, that, that particular game on face-offs. And it was just an instinctive gut decision because he had been winning them so uh, frequently that particular game. And maybe because he wasn't up against one of their best face-off men, but my perception was that he was, he was doing really well. Not that Mark wasn't, but I was just a, a gut feeling. So I went with it. Of course, it turned out to be a, a, a good move and, and they get the, the, the sixth goal in the last minute to win the, the, win the tournament against the Soviet Union. Now in New York, I had always uh, and most often tried to put out at least two people who could take the face off. When I had Mark and, and Adam Graves playing together, sometimes with Kovalev, sometimes with Anderson, uh, there would always be two of them who could take the face off. But in this particular case, Mark had so much respect for Mac T, Craig McTavish, uh, from his days in Edmonton and his ability to take face-offs. And uh, there was a quick discussion. Uh, Mac T was going to take the draw, and he already decided he was just going to cross-check Pavel Burry across the chest uh, to make sure he did win, when in fact that's what he did do. But in the event that he was kicked out, Mark was there as the backup. So there was a discussion about it and that's how that came about but that's a very good question and uh again sometimes when you're coaching it's an instinctive gut decision that that rules the day and not particularly a statistical decision and we're going to talk about uh, the rangers and that cup year and future episodes and it will take multiple episodes because it's an incredible story and mac t was one of the guys you picked up at the trade deadline that year overall the team but tell the story Mike uh, while we're here about that final thing final game the third game in Hamilton the 87 Canada Cup and I believe it was the first period uh, and Wayne Gretzky sitting on the bench yeah that's a great story because uh, I had been playing Wayne uh, a great amount as you know in that final series not that particular final game but in the series he was logging I would guess 27 to 30 minutes a game. And uh, in this particular game, uh, we got down quickly, but he turned to me and says, Mike, give me a break. I need a break. I'm exhausted and to, uh, to a point where uh, he needed to get some relief. So uh, that's why he was sitting on the bench for a few minutes because he had asked to, to, uh, to give him a break, he caught his breath, of course, came back and assisted on uh, the great goal of Mario Lemieux to win the, to win the, to win the series against the Soviet Union. But uh, everyone wondered why, you know, what's this crazy? Well, the Russian coaches again? were looking at well, you straight. Kikinov kept looking and said, what, what's Gretzky doing sitting on the bench? So Wayne had actually requested a break. Yeah, they all thought you were crazy. Lost your mind. How does he bench 99? But uh, yeah, that, that would have confirmed it for sure. If I had heard back from Keith Olbermann, by the way. Oh yeah. You never had a direct incident together. He says he never met you. Uh, he said, but for some reason you didn't like ESPN Sports Center, and you passed that message along and said the commercial in which Keith and Gordy Howe, promotional commercial, Gordy beats the crap out of Keith. 
you said it was the best thing he'd ever, you'd ever seen on TV. So <laughs> there's the well, history. I, I told you we did a few commercials, my uh, Dick Todd and, and Coley Campbell, myself, uh, about uh, about some of the events that took place with the Rangers. But we'll talk about that when we get to the Rangers. Yeah, yeah, we will. A lot of stories there. Um, so another question: What was it like to coach Jerome McGinley? That's from Mike Gould. Drum was an easy, and, and most of the superstars are easy to coach. He was really uh, self-driven, self-motivated, uh, very intense individual, uh, prepared himself well before games. He would put a towel over his head to, to get himself focused. Uh, it, again, the great players, you know what you have to do to, to really motivate them and keep them uh, involved in the team? But not only that, involved in the game, it's just play them and play them as much as they can take. And the more that you play them, the more they like. So uh, he didn't want to kill penalties, but he wanted all the other ice time that I could give him. And, and when you do that, at least that was my coaching style. I would play the best players most often, as you know. And he was one of the great players that uh, had the stamina, had the skill, uh, had the, 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 the physiology to to uh, have short recoveries, which most of them do, and could be put right back out in the ice. So uh, he was easy to coach and, uh, uh, again, a very intense individual, a superstar, like to fight from time to time as well. And, and he had great brawn as well as brilliance on the ice and thinking of the game. So another question from uh, Victor Laszlo. When you were a coach and a general manager, but if you're a lockstep with your GM, but if you're coaching a player you may like or not like, but you know he's going to be traded or waived, how much does the human side uh, interfere or get involved with the, the coaching side? You have to walk that fine line if you're a manager and coach, which I was, and or manager and coach, uh, to, to separate the decision you make trades as a manager for the sake, not of the sake, for the sake of trading, but for the sake of improving your team. And then when you're coaching, if you can make a human connection to that individual, you will get a lot stronger response from them in terms of their investment in themselves and the team and then the coaching. So there is a distinction between the two. So I'm gonna blend a couple, two questions together. And it is, what is the intensity level required to play for Mike Keenan? And could Mike Keenan play for Mike Keenan, the coach? Great question. Uh, I think that the, the answer, the first part of the question would be, uh, people would come into my teams and, and the players that already were there would say, uh, tell me about Keenan, what to expect. They said, well, First of all, don't have a bad practice. Secondly, don't have a bad warm-up. And third, don't have a bad first shift or you won't play. So it all came in the preparation part of it. And that is interesting uh, to be so intent and self-motivated um, whether I could play for somebody like that. I was as intense as a player and self-motivated as I am as a coach or was as a coach. Uh, I probably would respect that. that. I would respect the fact and, and those very intense superstars that I had liked the idea that, that they could just prepare for their game and the coach 
would help others that weren't as ready to play as, with that type of intensity to help them develop that skill and, and become that part of the team. That's the only way that you can really have the full value of all the players' compliments and the synergism of all the group to, to have the best possible team to be the most competitive team and, and ultimately to be able to win the Stanley Cup. So one more question, and then we'll wrap it up for this episode. But name a couple players that may not have been expected to be good NHLers or long-term NHLers, unexpected talents, questionable talents, but turned out to be good in playing for you. Well, there are a number of them, but I'll give a couple that people would be very familiar with because they follow me to many places. And that was uh, Stefan Mantola and Brian Noonan. Stefan, I traded for uh, with uh, Cliff Fletcher from Calgary. I believe I said him Trent Yanni. And, and uh, Stefan, at the time, you can make a trade. Well, he came to us, he was injured. He had calcified uh, uh, leg and, and uh, 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 he couldn't play for a while. So that once that, uh, medical situation was resolved and then uh he was a big uh, strong player but he had learned to play with that consistency and and intensity and he would be the first admitted uh to to come every game uh, every day to the to to the to the game with that kind of drive and and I, then brian noonan who i pushed uh, was had him brought up and down from the minors had great hands and skills but had to learn the play with that intensity as well on an ongoing basis every day. And once he learned that, both of them became very, very reliable, important players for the teams that I coached and other teams that they played for. Now, there's an example of, uh, of young players learning to be a pro, and that's exactly what it takes. Even the best, you learn what it takes to deliver your best skills every night on a consistent basis. Well, and both of them part of your 94 Cup winning team and both trade deadline acquisitions. Yes, and that was a big trade for us, uh, for Tony Amani. Again, we'll get into that discussion with the New York Rangers, but both of them played really well for me in Chicago and were part of the solution for us to go to the finals against Pittsburgh for sure. And, and it took us a while. We went to the final four, three or four years, won the President's Trophy, and then up going to the finals to play against Pittsburgh one year while I was in Chicago uh, out of the four years that I coached. So they, they were a great developing uh, part of a developing team, but developing young players that added a lot to that team. And of course, New York and other teams that I coached. Uh, and one other yeah. player in that mix and that conversation of at the time unexpected turned out to be a hall of famer, Eddie Belfort, your goal. Yeah, Ed, Eddie Belfort was uh, Again, poor Eddie, he, he, he was such an intense competitor and twice he came and we really didn't have great goaltending, but I make tough decision. I said, Ed, you're not quite ready. I sent him to Saginaw one year and then to the Canadian national program. And then he came back and became an all-star hall of famer for the Blackhawks and, and throughout his career. But that was really a hard decision because we kept other goaltenders and, and filled that position until he was ready. And then, of course, uh, when he finally showed up in the third third time, 
he would have those great discussions with me and debates to say he was ready. I said, you're not, you're not quite ready. Uh, you know, whether I was being stubborn or not, I don't think so, but it turned out well for his career. You know, I'll give you one interesting little story and then we'll wrap it up. But uh, I was sitting at the dinner table at the cottage and I got a phone call. My sister answered and said, uh, Mike, uh, can you take the phone calls for you? I said, sure. And she handed me the phone. She said, uh, a, uh, the answer was, uh, Mike, this is Ed Balfour. I'm just calling. I just got nominated to the Hockey Hall of Fame. And I want to thank you for giving me that start. Great story from Eddie Balfour. Yeah, no good. And the, the vivid image of Eddie and you is that one scene on the bench. We talked about it before when we had our goalie episodes, but you grabbing him by the, the neck and telling him, hey, I told you this was going to happen once or twice. Yeah, we did. And we made that agreement. They had forgotten it in the, the intensity of it. So, Scott, I think we have to wrap up. Uh, yep. We want to keep everybody interested. We want to tell all the stories in one afternoon. No, absolutely. I just uh, saw a note that the NHL has extended the the team self-isolation until uh, at least April 15th. So uh, it's going to be quiet for a while, but we'll be here every week. And uh, Mike, uh, you and yours and everybody who's listening, uh, stay safe, stay healthy, stay home, and stay at a distance. And uh, we will talk at you uh, in a week. Perfect. So I enjoyed it. And uh, again, uh, for all our friends and families, uh, wishing them the best. And particularly, again, going back to the Polinos who uh, are suffering right now. Our, our thoughts and prayers are with them. Absolutely. When I get done.